This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. A disconnection from one's soul may be present in many ways. Anxiety, depression, obsessions, excessive worrying, suicidal thoughts, self-destructive behaviors, psychosis, mania, addictions, and phobias, among many other presentations Dr. Anna Yusim may see in her medical office. Traditional medical and psychiatric practice may attribute the above symptoms or illness to chemical imbalances in the brain that need to be fixed with medications. A deficit in serotonin leads to depression. Prozac increases serotonin and so cures depression. It's as easy as that. Or is it? In many cases, although medications can treat the symptoms resulting from a disconnection from one's soul, they rarely treat the underlying etiology, which is the disconnection itself. Only by looking inside oneself and aligning with the deepest part of yourself can you address the root cause of the problem instead of the symptoms that result from it. Complete healing and fulfillment entails unearthing the root cause of the pain. In Dr. Anna Yusim's medical practice, only about half of the patients she treats are on medication, which is a relatively low percentage for a psychiatrist. For certain patients, however, medications are a lifeline without which they feel they could not survive. Work of the soul is hard to do, even impossible if you are so depressed that you cannot get out of bed, or so sleep-deprived from insomnia that you can barely function or so anxious that you cannot leave the house, or in an opiate withdrawal so painful that you don't know if you will even survive the day. Engaging in soul work is necessary for complete healing, but it is predicated on first being able to function in this world. When clinically indicated, psychiatric medications can sometimes be the very tools that allow one to emerge from the darkness. In Dr. Anna Yusim's work, she delves deeply into the psychological and spiritual tools she has used with her patients and in her own life to help them and herself connect to the soul and find greater fulfillment. In much of medicine, there is a long-standing unfortunate split between science and spirituality. 
Valeria interviews Dr. Anna Yusim, an award-winning, nationally recognized psychiatrist, speaker, and author with a private practice in New York City. She is a lecturer on the clinical faculty of the Yale Psychiatry Department. After working as a neurobiology researcher with Dr. Robert Sapolsky, Ph.D., and completing her studies at Stanford Yale Medical School and the NYU Psychiatry Residency Training Program, Dr. Yusim felt that something was missing from her life. In her quest to find it, she traveled, lived, and worked in over 50 countries while studying Kabbalah, learning Buddhist meditation, and working with South American shamans and Indian gurus. Dr. Yusim has published over 70 academic articles, book chapters, scientific abstracts, and book reviews on various topics in psychiatry. She has received numerous awards and distinctions, including the National Institute of Mental Health Outstanding Research Resident Award, the American Psychoanalytic Association Fellowship, the William Webb Fellowship from the Academy for Psychosomatic Medicine, the American Psychiatric Institute for Research and Education, APIRE, Janssen Research Award, the SEED Research Grant from the American Medical Association, first prize in the Sermo Resident Challenge, the CARTA Fellowship from the World Psychiatric Association, the Janet M. Glasgow Rubin Award for Women Leaders at Yale Medical School, the William F. Downs Fellowship for International Research, the Max Cade Fellowship, the Samuel F. and Sarah G. Feynman Scholarship for Leadership, the Foreman Fleischer Foundation Scholarship for Academic Excellence, the Golden Award for Top Thesis Written in the Humanities at Stanford University, the Hofser Prize for Top Essay Written in Stanford University Course, the Bessie F. Lawrence International Fellowship, and the National Science Foundation Scholarship. Here is the interview with Dr. Anna Yusim. In your own words, who is Dr. Anna Yusim? That's a good question. I am somebody who is a seeker, a deeply spiritual person, a doctor, obviously a psychiatrist, a healer, and really somebody who just loves life and takes life in all of its forms and manifestations. Wow, that sounds great to me. (laughs) I have a few warm-up questions before we talk about your book, Fulfilled, How the Science of Spirituality Can Help You Live a Happier, More Meaningful Life. So my first warm-up question is, what is life to you? Life is really what happens day to day, minute to minute. And it's about being in the present with your life, whatever that means, whether those are your thoughts, your emotions, your experiences, your grief, your sadness, your difficulties, your challenges, your joys, and being as present as you can so that you're not looking back at the past or thinking always about the future. Both, obviously, the past and the future are so important in shaping you as well. But the more we can be present, that's where life really occurs. What do you think is the opposite of life, Dr. Anna? Well, I guess the obvious answer to that would be death. But, (laughs) you know, so many people are alive and yet not fully alive. Like the walking dead, they call them sometimes. And this is so many people who come to me will deal with that. And I have felt that way in the past. It's like a, almost like a death of the soul or a death of your purpose and mission. Just really feeling lost, confused. 
not knowing what it is that you're supposed to be doing and how you're supposed to be doing it. And it's a very dark place. It's what I, in my book, refer to as the dark night of the soul. Yeah, true. Very much true. What is the meaning of freedom to you? You know, we live in a world where there are so many freedoms, and then we often can limit our own freedoms. So freedom is the ability to think and be as you wish to be. But in order to be able to do that, you have to answer the question of who am I and what is it that I most deeply want separate from what anybody else in society and our families or our schools or may expect us to be. In order to answer that question, you have to get to a deeper sense of authenticity and know yourself, and then you can have freedom. Yeah. At this time, what do you think is the world's greatest need, and what is your vision for a new world? Well, given that we're having this conversation in the midst of our COVID pandemic, where so many people already have either been sick or died or have lost their livelihoods, their identities, and their jobs in such a short period, I think what we need more than anything else is hope, hope for a better future. And being able to see this darkness that we are in the midst of as something that could heal us and transform us and enable us to evolve into more powerful beings, into more evolved versions of ourselves. Uh, You mentioned the word hope. That's an interesting word that most people connect to faith and trust. Do you make this connection too? Definitely, definitely, right? Because hope always has an element of faith. And faith is the belief without proof. And that's the whole thing that You can hope for something. You never really know if it's going to happen. And you can have a lot of fear that it won't happen, or you can have hope and belief and faith that it will and live your life to the best of your ability in line with that hope and faith. Because sometimes living the opposite way is just too scary. Yeah, true. Um, I guess I avoided using that word hope for so long because I was connecting it to illusions, deluding myself with ideas that were unrealistic. But I like the way you clarified that in a sense of um, trusting. Yeah, it's almost impossible to live without hope. Absolutely. And since we are co-creators of our reality, what we put forth as far as our wishes, our beliefs, our attitudes, and how we see the world is also how we co-create. So it's sometimes could feel safer not to have hope to, you know, push it away and instead have adopt more of a cautious, maybe cautiously optimistic, perhaps some would call realistic, maybe even pessimistic perspective. You know, there there is a lot of studies showing that the people who are a little bit more pessimistic maybe have a more accurate conception of how much control they actually have in the world. But the people who are actually happier are those who overestimate how much control they have in the world. So it's okay to delude ourselves a little bit and actually believe maybe that we have a little bit more control. Obviously not to the point where it's going to ruin your life and you know, you're going to make choices that you regret and that aren't founded on positive good things. And yet still hope you know, really helps mental and physical well-being. 
I like that. Yeah, the way you kind of uh, brought happiness and hope together in the way people who have hope, faith and trust that they're happier people and perhaps even healthier in the way. Exactly, exactly. Um, what is love to you? So love is being able to have an open heart and accept somebody unconditionally with all of their flaws and their beautiful qualities and the things about them that could drive you nuts and the things about them that you will admire and that will you will absolutely adore. So it's being able to accept someone fully and completely without conditions. Uh, do you also um, make the relationship between unconditional love and self-love or unconditional self-love? Definitely, definitely. It's very hard to do that. And I often feel that <laughs> yeah. so many people who come to my practice, because so many people are, you know, I have a practice in Manhattan, and the people who come are very high functioning. They've accomplished a lot. And often those people have the highest standards for themselves, meaning they can also be the most critical of themselves. They're the doctors and nurses and CEOs and lawyers and who are used to accomplishing so much, but they can accomplish that much often by beating themselves up, by holding themselves to such high standards, to such perfectionistic standards that God forbid they fall short, then, you know, they don't feel good about themselves and their sense of identity is shaken. That's true for so many of us in so many levels, right? I'm wondering if um, unconditional self-love can become a practice, a daily practice. Oh, it's, it's a beautiful practice. And it's actually a practice I about in my book, Fulfill, that we're going to talk about. You identify a few things about yourself every day that you appreciate, and it could be anything. It could be if you're used to being judgmental, especially of oneself, you realize when you were less so. If you've been feeling a little down and you feel that there's been a mood shift, you recognize that. And every day, it's like a gratitude practice, but one focused on unconditional self-love. So what are those things that you love about yourself and are grateful for about yourself? Yeah, gratitude. That's another wonderful state of mind, right? Very much connected to self-love. Um, so I have a few more warm-up questions. Uh, I'd say four more. Uh, what, where, and who is God to you? <laughs> what, where, and who? I love that. I think God is everybody and everything, and it's an energy that's all-pervasive, and it could exist outside of you as much as it could exist inside of you. And I guess the anthropomorphic view of God is an old man with a beard and a cane sitting on a cloud. And perhaps that's, you know, one manifestation of God. But I actually believe God to be an energy that pervades everything and is within each and every one of us. And sometimes people say that we're all one unified soul. And I think that this is the way in which the divinity you know, what God is lives within each and every single one of us. So you do not have to look outside of yourself to find God. You can find God, of course, in nature, in the birds, in other people, at church, in synagogue. But you also can find God by looking within and connecting to your own soul and your own heart. So my next questions, they are connected to spirituality. And we'll be talking a lot more about spirituality. That's what you write about and what your work is about as well. So let me begin with these questions. What is spirituality to you? And is there a difference between spirituality and religion? Mm -hmm. um, those are great questions. And spirituality to me is a connection to part of something greater than oneself. And that something could indeed be God, like we talked about, in which case spirituality would be equivalent to religion. And for some people it is. But 
It doesn't have to be God. That connection to something greater could be, the greater could be a collective consciousness or mother nature or source or collective, you know, unconscious even. A lot of psychiatrists, they maybe don't believe in the soul, but they believe in the unconscious mind. And a lot of people see those two as equivalent. That's where our deepest uh, desires and wishes bubble up within the unconscious. True. And if you don't believe in any of those things, you could believe that the part of something greater is a connection to a set of transcendent values, such as hope and trust and faith and perseverance and courage. And in that way, spirituality can be very religious if you're part of something greater is God, or it could be completely secular. I know many atheists who are actually quite spiritual people because they're so deeply connected to nature and to Mother Earth, and that's really their religion. Two more questions. What do you think is the purpose of life? I think the purpose of life is to love and to ascend, meaning that to elevate your spirit and your soul and your consciousness. And there's many different tools of how to do that. We can discuss those. Yeah, absolutely. I have lots of questions for you here after this last one. (laughs) What is the main purpose or mission of your life? My life is to be more deeply connected to source or to God and to heal. So let's talk about your work. What was the inspiration and intention of writing your book, Fulfilled? Yeah, so um, when I wrote the book, I had been in practice for about eight or nine years already in my private practice, um, maybe, uh, let's see, 10 years in total as a psychiatrist, and had seen about a thousand patients. And I started um, practicing with more of a spiritual bent. And it was nothing that I advertised on my website or it was even, you know, forward about, but it just started happening over time as that entered my own life. And so what I did through my book was start to share with the broader audience what I was doing, Um, meaning I had about 50 patient cases, patients who I've worked with and who I wanted to tell their story. And the patients agreed and together with the different patients, either I wrote up the story or we wrote up their story together. And these were the cases that came out in my book. And through the cases, we were able to elucidate a set of spiritual principles that actually can go hand in hand with modern psychiatric care and that help people heal more thoroughly, more deeply, and in a different way when people are open to it. Oh, when they're open to it, right. That's the key, always the case with change and transformation. Exactly. So my first, my second follow-up question has to be this one. What is your own definition of fulfillment? Yeah, for me, It means looking at my life and feeling a sense of peace, which is something, you know, there's like, you're not always going to feel at peace at life. And sometimes life will throw you a curveball. Our curveball was my husband and I both got COVID and we were in New York City. Thank goodness we both recovered or on, on the other side of it. But that's an example, you know, and were we at peace as it was happening? It was very stressful. And yet there was a deeper sense of fulfillment that came from knowing that we were living our purpose and we were doing everything that we could do. And so fulfillment comes, I believe, from a deeper sense of trust in the universe. And you, of course, giving 100% to whatever it is that you want to manifest and then trusting that the universe will take it from there. 
So it goes back to trust, hope, and faith. Exactly, exactly. What do you think leads us to spiritual awakening? But before that, maybe I have to ask you the question, what is spiritual awakening to you? <laughs> and how did you yeah. become interested in spiritual pursuits and discovered fulfillment in spirituality? Yeah, and I think a spiritual awakening means different things to different people. For some people, it's really this realization or recognition that the world works a little bit differently than they thought, that there are such things as miracles, that prayer is powerful, that in addition to this three-dimensional world that we inhabit, there could be synchronicities or, you know, meaningful coincidences that are a wink from God or a wink from the upper worlds showing us that we are on our path and we're doing what we need to be doing. So that's you know, a little bit of what spiritual awakening is. And for everybody, it's a different path. But I also feel like if a spiritual awakening is part of your path, it's going to happen. And oftentimes, how do things happen? What forces us to change? It's a dark night of the soul. It's pain or it's something that is difficult and unexpected that comes in our life that forces us to challenge our conceptions of who we are, of how we heal, of how we overcome things. And through that challenge, it opens up reservoirs within ourselves that we didn't even know that we had, reservoirs of strength and courage. And then on the other side, you realize you're a different person. I really like the way you talk about pain and challenges being a pathways in a way to um, spiritual awakening, deeper wisdom. And that's um, something that most people might be missing out in a way because they are numbing the pain or trying to escape from them. Right, right. They only say that the only way through pain is through it, that you have to feel it, you have to experience it, you have to let it overtake you. And you know, you have to, it could beat you up. It could, you could fall to your knees and be like, I don't know what to do. But that's also, that place is a place of mercy and a place where transformation begins. It's like when you've done everything that you can to solve a problem, that's the point at which like almost giving up isn't really giving up and saying there's no other solution. Sometimes when you give up, you're surrendering to something greater. You say, you're saying, I've done my part. This is all I can do. God, if there is a God, please take it from here. There's not much more I can do. Yeah, that's another um, wonderful state of mind, the surrender, letting go, and acceptance. And um, oh, in your book, you say, I believe the true work of healing comes not from the mind, but from the heart and soul. So I have two questions, I guess, or maybe four. <laughs> um, what is the mind and consciousness to you? And what are thoughts? Yeah, so it's a beautiful question because there's the brain, which is the physical part of the mind. And then there's the mind and consciousness, which is kind of the, the non-physical, the energetic component. And that's the part that connects us to everybody and everything. It's really a quantum physics concept that we are all connected and that this interconnectedness pervades everything. And numerous people have written about it, including Eben Alexander, um, the Harvard neurosurgeon who wrote the book Proof of Heaven, and also Lynn McTaggart, who wrote about the zero point field or the infinite field. Um, she was a journalist who was taken almost, you know, not by her own choosing in this direction, and it ended up 
changing her whole life and her understanding of mind and consciousness. Right. When you say the heart and soul, do you have a different definitions for them? Yeah. So, you know, the heart is the place from which all love originates. And oftentimes you can reach your soul through your heart. That is one of the places that the soul resides. And for some people, that's the easiest access to your soul. It's hard to get to the soul through the mind because mind implies duality, meaning for every good, there's a bad. For every black, there's a white. The heart implies unity. There isn't that duality. You can have good without bad, which is why when you manifest or when you try to create, you want to create from your heart and not just from your mind. When you create from the mind, you're going to also create the negative opposite of whatever it is that you're trying to create that's positive. Right. And speaking of the soul, what are some of the causes and the consequences of disconnecting from one's soul and how and why traditional medical and psychiatric practice only address the symptoms for that disconnection? Right, right. So this is my, you know, the root of my life's work is that often if we're disconnected from the soul, if you're not really connected with the deepest part of yourself, you don't know who you are. And you can be living your life wrong, in the wrong way. You could be making decisions that aren't in line. You know, some decisions you make with your mind, but other decisions like what is it that I'm meant to be doing with my life or who am I meant to marry? Those are hopefully decisions you'll be making with your soul, with your heart and soul, and not just with your mind. We know plenty of people who can make a decision, oh, this person looks good on paper. They have the perfect resume. They marry them and are quite unhappy. They listen to their mind and not to their heart. And so that's why it's so important to live a life that's aligned with your soul. Because if it's not aligned, the symptoms like you asked could be feeling out of sorts, feeling depressed, feeling anxious, having insomnia, having any sort of symptom of either mental illness or just general distress that comes as a product of being out of alignment with your deepest self. And it's so true. Would you say that all mental negative mental states of mind or uh, mental distress as such, anxiety and depression and all those, are they all connected to this, uh, the separation from one's soul? I think that it certainly could be. That's one of the etiologies of anxiety, depression, you know, is a disconnection from oneself, but there's a lot of others. Some people come into this world with certain genetic predispositions and certain, you know, a certain biochemistry that might lead themselves to be more depressed or to see the world a certain way or to then benefit from whether it be medications or supplements or an exercise regimen. And just through the biology, by changing their biology, they're able to change those symptoms. So disconnection from one's soul is definitely one of the core etiologies, but there are so many others that need to also be considered. Okay. You do that kind of work too, of uh, the clinical part. If they need to take medication, then it is also the case. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah, about 50% of my patients take medication and the other 50% don't. Would medication get in the way of exploring more of that subtle, the, the inner voice? That's a great question. And the answer to that is it depends. So for some people, yes, because what medication can do is it can keep you from fully feeling your feelings. 
And sometimes people get on medication because the extent of what they're feeling is so intense and so overwhelming that they can't get out of bed, that they can't live their life, that they can't do the work that they're meant to do. So they need a little bit of that crutch, whether temporarily or on an ongoing basis, to be able to be functional, to live a full life. And then there are other people who, having been through that, will make the choice, you know what? Okay, I'm ready to feel the extent of my feelings, whatever that means. And I've had a number of patients who, with therapy, were able to get off their medications, and sometimes it's very, very hard, and embrace a new level of being and feeling. Oh, wow. So it depends. It's like a, the dose is really important. Exactly. Talk to me about this integration of the science of spirituality and medicine and traditional medicine. And, you know, I was concerned in writing my book because here I was maybe, you know, 10 years into my practice and what are people going to think? And so I, I was quite concerned about that. I'm like, they're going to discredit me because I'm talking about something that, you know, although there actually is a lot of scientific and medical evidence showing that many forms of spirituality aid healing, it's not totally accepted by the medical community. People like medications more. But what actually ended up happening is the exact opposite. And I had a number of very senior people in my profession, including two former presidents of the American Psychiatric Association, strongly endorse the book. And then other psychiatrists write positive reviews in psychiatric journals about the book. And it was after the book came out that my medical school, where I went to medical school, Yale, offered me a, um, a faculty position. So I'm there as a lecturer now, and I'm working to create a spirituality and mental health center within Yale's Department of Psychiatry. So I, so I guess the world was ready for it. It was open to it, which is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Wow, beautiful thing it is. And you just got all this started. How wonderful is that? Yes, it's a lot of work and it's been a lot of challenges, but also so rewarding and fulfilling for sure. Right. And that is the journey of the soul. It's not always easy, right? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Uh, How wonderful. So let's talk about some of the principles, the methods that you use. And the first one is authenticity. My question is, the, the first question is always this one, your definition of authenticity. And then what are the limits of being authentic, which kind of surprised me to know. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Yes. And so authenticity is really an alignment with your soul. It's living from the deepest part of yourself, meaning being in touch with that part and tapping in every day to questions like, what is it that I most deeply want? Not in a hedonistic way, but in a very purposeful, meaningful, spiritual way. What am I meant to be doing here in this world? What would make me truly happy and fulfilled? That's authenticity, being able to connect to that. But authenticity is also so much more. It means recognizing the masks that we might wear in order to please people, being able to, if we so choose, take off those masks when the time is right. And it also means embracing parts of yourself that you may not want to embrace, our so-called shadow side. And the shadow is those things that we've been taught are not lovable. And over time, we've pushed aside and started to disavow. And that's our shadow. You have to embrace every part of you to be truly authentic, not just push away the bad and only embrace the good. That's perfectionism. And that will create, you know, what we resist persists. So if we push away certain parts of ourselves, they come back in other parts of our life and end up hurting us. 
Yeah, I have a question here for you about a comment before, but I'll, I'll ask you this question after, I guess. So what about the limits of authenticity? Is that fear one of the obstacles? Definitely. Fear is one of the obstacles because if you're being true to yourself and completely true to yourself, that means that there's going to be a lot of people who might not agree, who might not like it, who might be quite offended. And it takes a strong person to be able to stand with your own two feet on the ground and say, this is who I am and this is what I need to be doing. And to not you know, succumb to all the different winds that are trying to blow you in one direction or the other. So the other limits of authenticity are <clears throat> we, you know, you and I are from New York City. We live in a country which values for the most part, not always, but for the most part, freedom of speech or freedom of thought. Not every country is like that. And I've had many patients coming from countries where it was very much not valued. And one young woman, you know, stood up to her father for the man she wanted to marry because she was expected to have an arranged marriage. And she ended up being beaten and then kept in the house for months. And that was completely acceptable in this country and culture, which is just, you know, astounding. And that's also the limits of authenticity because you can't always be fully yourself. And so you could know yourself to the degree that you're able and then to express that knowing in whatever way society permits. Yeah. Does it make you think about regarding those culture differences? It makes you think, or do you believe there is such a thing as reincarnation or karma that we are born in a specific society or family because we chose to in a different uh, reality? I believe in that. I certainly believe in reincarnation. I know that my husband and I, we've had many, many lifetimes together. And that's why when I met him, he was just so familiar to me. And as I got to know him, we would be reading each other's minds all the time. And kind of, there was like this intuitive psychic thing that just happened with us so quickly. So I, and I believe that with other, you know, people in my life too, that we travel in certain soul groups and have certain souls with whom we've journeyed in this lifetime before. And that while we have a body, we also have a soul. And even after our body ceases to be and no longer has the vitality, our soul moves on and lives on. And so I certainly believe in that. I don't know, you know, what kind of, there actually are a lot of people studying. Um, well, there's a psychiatrist, Brian Weiss, also went to Yale Medical School like myself, and he studies a lot of past life regressions. And Eben Alexander and many others have studied um, near-death experiences. So those are some of the things that point in the direction of having more than just this lifetime to look at and to consider as we think about our lives. Right, right. So going back to um, the uh, the thought, the concept of shadow, is that connected to false beliefs? Would you say that? The false belief it's connected to is that there's parts of yourself that are unlovable, you know, and oftentimes we will push away those parts of ourselves, like, and that could be our aggression or our anger, or it could be our neediness or our dependency needs. You know, we're not okay with those parts. And so we push them aside. So if we're not okay with anger, we try to be nice to everybody all the time and try to be sweet and kind. If we're not okay with neediness, we push that part of ourselves away. And then we try to be super independent and hide all of our dependency needs and neediness. But then with the same concept I mentioned before, what you resist persists. So what happens then is that those parts that we've tried to disavow as our shadow, 
and that we haven't accepted in ourselves, those end up being the things that most annoy us about other people. And so if I pushed away my anger, the thing that's going to annoy me most about others is their anger. If I pushed away my neediness or my dependency needs, the things that are going to annoy me most about others is when they need something from you or they're too dependent. So that's just an example of that. And what we need to do with those things is integrate those parts into our own personality and into our being and embrace every part of us. And the more that we can do that, the more we can embrace our totality as human beings. So when you say embrace, is that in the sense of uh, accepting, of loving those parts? Exactly. Accepting, loving. Exactly. Okay. Um, and um, some of the tools or exercise that you suggest to become more authentic, um, you talk about love, uh, journaling, and meditation. How do we practice love? Isn't it sort of um, connected to one's understanding of what love is? Definitely. Definitely, yeah. And something that I write about in my book is loving kindness meditations. And that is a series of four sentences that you could repeat to yourself over time in a way that um, opens you up. So it's kind of like a mantra, but it's a four sentence mantra where you're really focused on trying to be the best version of yourself and opening your heart to love. So to answer your question, the way that you could use love as a practice is via the loving kindness meditation. And I have a slightly revised form of it in my book. And that is a four line mantra that you recite over and over while you sit in contemplative practice. And that four line mantra is, may I be free of worry and fear. May I be happy. May I be free from suffering. May I be at peace. Yeah, I love this meditation. And the, the line that always gets to me is, may I be free from suffering. Absolutely, absolutely. And so much of our own suffering is within our own mind. It's how we see the world. And if we're able to just have a little bit of an about face and a little shift in our perspective, our suffering could actually be beautiful. Our suffering can be the very pathway that opens up our growth, our healing, and our transformation. It's this concept that when you're down, the only way you can go is up. When you're up, the only way you can go is down, and that everything changes. Yeah, so true. So let me ask you a question about living your purpose. When do we know that we are living our purpose? Is there like a moment? When do we know for sure that we are there? And the answer to that question is that you know that you are living your purpose in the moment. And the next moment, your purpose may actually change. Like I, for instance, have a broader purpose, and that's to heal. I feel that I'm meant to heal others as a psychiatrist, as, you know, many other forms as well. And yet, in addition to that, there's so many other sub-purposes that have come into my life, obviously being a wife and a friend and so many other things that have evolved over time. Even doing podcasts like this and being able to teach and share some of these concepts are a form of my purpose. And so I think the most important thing is to realize that the question of purpose is really something that is dynamic. And that's also part of authenticity to always be checking in with yourself as to what's right. That also brings back that idea of being open because the purpose might change. Exactly. 
Exactly. What about writing and journaling as a healing method or a way of being more aware of how authentic we are? How do you suggest we do that? Absolutely. So in my book, I wrote about a number of stream of consciousness writing exercises. And that's when you set aside five minutes a day to ask a key question. And there's many different key questions throughout the different sections. And when you write, you write completely uncensored and without stopping for those five minutes. You don't look back. You don't do anything that in any way will be criticizing yourself, judging yourself, being perfectionistic, changing your syntax. You just let all that energy out. And then afterwards, you can put it away. And if you choose, you can look back later. And it's so this, the purpose of writing like in this way is to try to free up the unconscious mind and to release from the reaches of your unconscious, whatever it is that you need to do. In writing, it is a great way of exposing unconscious uh, thoughts and, and beliefs, false beliefs. Um, I have a question for you here about dreams. You mentioned this in your book, and I, yeah, you said, I believe dreams are created by the soul as a way of helping the dreamer tap into their own inner wisdom. You just talked about subconscious mind, the unconscious mind. Are dreams connected to that part of our minds? Definitely. Definitely. Dreams come from a very similar place, and dreams are often our unconscious mind trying either to make sense of something that's happened prior in the day or to even give us some signals or guidance on where our life is going. Freud, Sigmund Freud, called dreams the royal road to the unconscious. And so often when you examine a dream, in addition to looking at what the dream symbolize, like what the actual symbols or people represented in the dream. It's important to know what feelings you felt and what happened the day prior to having the dream. And then you can put all of that together and do this method called free association. So what comes to mind when you think about that or when you think about that? And then you keep going until you start to figure out the meaning of your dream. Yeah, I know there are a lot of um, dream interpretation books and resources. Do you suggest we use that too? Oh, absolutely. Yes. There's many different ways of interpreting dreams. Um, what I, with the wish fulfillment method, which is Sigmund Freud's, is one of the timeless methods, but there's so many other methods too. And this is what you talk uh, about in soul correction, uh, improving relationships. And you talk about the soul visualization exercise. Can you explain that to me? Yes, the soul visualization is. So a soul correction, first I'll explain that. The soul correction is what your soul has come into this world to correct. And so you could know your soul correction by asking yourself the question, what is the greatest challenge in your life? What keeps coming up again and again and again? often much to your chagrin and dismay, and despite your best efforts to change it. That's your soul correction. For some people, it's being independent. For other people, it's actually being dependent on people for allowing themselves to open their heart and love. For some people, it's working with certain kinds of people who remind them of people from their childhood who were difficult. For some people, it's learning to harness your personal power and speak up. Those are just a few of the soul corrections. And then the soul visualization exercise is if ever you have a conflict with somebody and it's part of your soul correction, you want to, the night before you're going to speak to them, if you have a big 
either confrontation or a big meeting with this person, you want to address and speak as though you're speaking from your soul to their soul and to let their soul know exactly what your soul wants it to know. And this is from a place only of love and healing. Yes, there could be hard feelings, anger, et cetera. That's all normal. You can share all that as well. But the goal of the soul reconciliation, the soul visualization is really forgiveness and allowing everybody to move on. Yeah, I love that. That's another powerful state of mind in practice. That's interesting with forgiveness because I thought it was one time thing, but um, it seems like we have to uh, practice that every day. Maybe not forgiving the same people, but uh, forgiving ourselves most of the time. Exactly. Exactly. So, so important, right? And forgiveness is one of those things. It's when you carry that stuff in your heart, whether it's the grudge, the anger, the resentment, it's like you're eating the poison and you're hoping the other person who you haven't forgiven will die. But actually, no, when we eat the poison, we're the ones that suffer. So forgiveness is freeing yourself from that poison. Yeah, yeah, it's such a beautiful thing. By open up and being kind of um, uh, have this deep understanding that everything's connected, that uh, God is everywhere and in everyone and everything, then it's so easy. Everything else becomes so much easier to practice. <laughs> definitely, definitely right. If you can make that shift, that changes your whole life. It's a hard shift to make because to create to make that shift. You have to get through all of the layers of ego. And ego has many manifestations, including hatred and anger and jealousy and pride and the need for control. So those are all the things you have to work through within yourself to really be able to connect to your soul and to forgive. That's true. That's interesting that you talk about the, the different manifestations of the ego. And what comes to mind is like, I know you mentioned some negative traits or qualities that we display, but then it could be qualities that we think that's good. That's a great thing, like love, the idea of love. And we become attached to that. And I don't know, that might cause a lot of uh, problems too. That's uh, ego-based most of the time, the idea of loving obsession, loving somebody or ownership of others' possession. Exactly, right? Because exactly, so obsession is not at all about love. It's about possession and control, exactly. It could easily become that if we don't have that deep understanding. That's right. right. That's right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So we're almost at the end. And would you like to add anything or read a passage in your book, Dr. Anna, before I ask you my final questions? Um, well, I could tell you that with um, my dear colleagues, Eben Alexander and Karen Newell, we recently created a spirituality and mental health course. And I think I sent you the link for that. And it's going to cover a lot of the ideas that we discussed today. But also, we'll have Karen Newell, who created a very special meditation technology that I did a study on in my practice um, that reduces anxiety. Um, she's going to be talking about that, and Eben Alexander will be speaking about his own experiences about the nature of consciousness. So I hope that if people are interested, they will explore this course. Yes, I'll have the link below. And my final questions, how do you define success today? I think success is feelings of fulfillment. I don't think success is defined by the externals. I think success is feeling that you are living according to your soul and doing what you have come to this world to do. What was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself? 
oh, there's been so many and I'm continuing to learn them. It's really just identifying the manifestations of one's own ego and looking at all of those things and realizing how hard it is to change, how hard it is to look within and uproot those parts and realizing often that you need help with that, that it's not something you do on your own without some level of surrender. There's tools, you use your tools, but then in addition to that, you ask for help and you say, you know what, I've done what I can, please take it from here. And when we begin to do the work, then um, we become a lot more compassionate, right, toward other people and exactly. their suffering. Exactly. Exactly. Um, what is another word for healing? Another word for healing is love. <laughs> I think love heals. Yeah, it does. If you knew you would die soon, meaning losing the body, would you make any change in your life or do anything differently? Hmm. You know, it's so interesting because my husband and I both got COVID. We're both on the other side, thank God. And I feel like for us, that was really that. We're like, we hope we make it on the other out of this. And so we're actually doing that now. I've been in New York City for 10 years. And so now we're actually thinking about moving to a rural area in Connecticut. That's where we are right now. Um, of course, I'll continue my practice, but it will be a remote practice. And I'm going to be doing much more teaching and sharing in this way. But yeah, we're we're in process to do that. Absolutely, I'm making those chains right. Exactly. That's interesting. It's a question that um, I ask myself every day, and I think it should be reflected because we never know when that's happening. That's right. And my last two more questions: um, What are three things about life you know for sure as of today? <laughs> <laughs> Almost nothing, because I feel like everything changes. But what I know for sure is, number one, that everything changes. Number two is that we have the present moment. And number three, that we have the capacity to love and open our hearts. And that's what we need to be living with. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Anna, for your wisdom Thank you, Valeria. And presence. Thank you. Thank Where can you. we find more information about you, your books, course, products, services, and future projects? Sure, sure. That is all on my website, which is www.annayusim.com. A-N-N-A-Y-U-S-I-M. Thank you so much again, and we'll talk soon. Thanks, Valeria. It's a Thank pleasure. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Anna. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Dr. Anna Yusim, please visit her website, AnnaYusim.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Vickrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now.